to so much of our Old Testament material as would be expected. So hymn 346 stanzas one and two. Spirit in the church cry out. Our Lord Jesus. All those who await his appearance pray. Our Lord Jesus. The whole creation pleads. Our Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus Christ, we implore you to hear our prayers and to lighten the darkness of our hearts by your gracious visitation. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. I love these colics in the church here, in Advent in particular. They're so subtle yet powerful. So you have this colic for the third Sunday in Advent. Lord Jesus Christ, we implore you to hear our prayers and to lighten the darkness of our hearts by your gracious visitation. It's uh, one of the fewer colics in the Sunday church year cycle that is directed to God the Son, our Lord Jesus. Most of them are directed to the Father, a few to the Spirit, and a few more to the Son. In Advent, two of the four are directed to the Son. And in this one, light in the darkness of our hearts by your gracious visitation is highlighting the theme of Advent one of the three, the daily coming of Christ in his word, in his sacraments. So enlighten the darkness by your gracious visitation. It's not talking about the second coming, when of course then there will be no darkness at all, but about his daily coming now to lift us out of the doldrums of despair and the sorrow caused by sin and so forth. It's a great week because we are in the fifth and sixth petitions in the Catechism of the Lord's Prayer. 
And let us do those together. We're backing up to the verse for the week. Uh, What is the fifth petition? And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. What does this mean? We pray in this petition that our Father in heaven would not look at our sins or deny our prayer because of them. We are neither worthy of the things for which we pray, nor have we deserved them. But we ask that he would give them all to us by grace. For we daily sin much, and surely deserve nothing but punishment. So we too will sincerely forgive, and gladly do good to those who sin against us. In this petition explanation, notice a couple of things that we don't generally notice. The petition's pronouns are in the singular or the plural. The plural. And forgive us our trespasses. We tend to think of the fifth petition particularly when we are struggling to forgive someone. Forgive me my trespasses as I forgive those who trespass against me, and I don't do it, and God is damning me because of it. Okay, not that any of you would ever have any inclination to have such a temptation enter your conscience. But Luther correctly in his explanation uses the plural pronoun because the petition does. And in recent years, I've been emphasizing, and if you haven't remembered it, I'll repeat it. If you've never heard it, then you get to hear it. This forgive us our trespasses. The us is talking about the company of the baptized faithful. Forgiving the trespasses of those who sin against us, the company of the baptized, the church, is what we are as Christians. And I'd like you to imagine coming to the altar to receive communion, kneeling together with your brothers and sisters, and thinking about the words of that explanation. We pray in this petition that our Father in heaven would not look at our sins or deny our prayer because of them. We are neither worthy of the things for which we pray, nor have we deserved them, but we ask that he would Give them all to us by grace, for we daily sin much and surely deserve nothing but punishment. Now you stop right there. That's what we are confessing when we gather together in the divine service in general and when we kneel at the altar in particular. It's one of the reasons why you can't have online communion. It's what the Germans call an unding. You can't do it. There is no substitute for the church being in the presence of one another. Kneeling together, letting go of the sins that you have, not simply against your spouse or your children, but your brothers and sisters and indeed all people. And Luther correctly emphasizes, you know, he puts the emphasis on the right syllable in that whole introduction up to this point. Unless we learn to believe that he gives us everything by grace because we daily sin much, we deserve nothing but punishment, 
unless we learn to believe that, we'll never, A, receive his grace rightly, nor, as the last sentence says, sincerely forgive and gladly do good to those who sin against us. Now, bear in mind, the struggle to forgive is not the same thing as Steve Lesage has sinned against me, and by God, I'm going to punish him because of it. There's a difference, you understand? The struggle with sin, that's part of our prayers. Forgive us our trespasses. Forgive Steve, forgive me for holding it against Steve. Help, O Lord, for apart from your grace, I cannot sincerely forgive and gladly do good to those who sin against me. Right now, Joanna said, man, what did Steve do? No. Oh, you knew. (laughs) Okay, so bear that in mind. Any questions on this fifth petition that you'd like to ask? Okay. And let us pray the colic for the fifth petition. Heavenly Father, forgive us our trespasses. Do not look upon our sins or deny any of our prayers because of them. We are neither worthy of the things for which we pray, nor have we deserved them. But we ask that he would give them all to us by grace, for we daily sin much and surely deserve nothing but punishment. Grant us your forgiveness so that we, too, will sincerely forgive and gladly do good to those who sin against us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Okay, sixth petition. What is the sixth petition? And lead us not into temptation. What does this mean? God tempts no one. We pray in this petition that God would guard and keep us so that the devil, the world, and our sinful nature may not deceive us or mislead us into false belief, despair, and other great shame and vice. Although we are attacked by these things, we pray that we may finally overcome them and win the victory. I cannot teach this petition without remembering the impact of a devotional catechesis that Dr. Thomas Thomas Gieschen, uh, choral director of the Capella at Concordia, gave, where he emphasized the inflection of the sixth petition with the coming seventh petition this way. And lead us, not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. As opposed to the emphasis, and lead us not. Okay? Now, Luther understood that, what comes out in English. The the Lord's Prayer in Greek is very hard to translate. It's extremely difficult. Uh, Surely, it does not mean what Luther said it didn't mean. God tempts no one. But we pray in this petition that God would guard and keep us. So that the devil, the world, and our sinful nature may not deceive us or mislead us into false belief, despair, and other great shame and vice. Although we are attacked by these things, we pray that we may finally overcome them and win the victory. So lead us, not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. There is a linkage in every one of the petitions to the one before and the one after. Uh, That's the case in the fifth petition, and forgive us our trespasses. This is this 
uh, special nectar, which she thinks you all should have. Yes. That's why she brought it up to me. Thank you very much. I'm just a two-fisted drinker here this morning, okay? <laughs> this is, what do you call it, kabunka, kabunki? Kombucha or kombucha. Well, I can't ever say that, right? <laughs> so that's what it is. It's supposed to keep me in good health. Lechaya. Yes. Um, anyway, and forgive us our trespasses. The and there links you to the fourth petition. Give us this day our daily bread. And last week, you know, you meditated upon daily bread includes everything that has to do with the support and needs of the body. Food, drink, clothing, shoes, house, home, land, animals, money, goods, and about husband or wife, about children, about workers, devout and faithful rulers, good government, good weather, peace, health, self-control, good reputation, faithful neighbors, and the like. My goodness, if it includes all of that, then this is where the trespasses come into play in the relationship with our devout husband or wife, which at times isn't so devout, nor are we, so there's sin. So give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses. So also here, forgive us our trespasses and lead us, not into temptation, okay? but deliver us from evil. So they all string together like that paper chain that you make for your Christmas tree. In any circumstances of life, lead us not into temptation. Uh, there are always two wills at work, and we mentioned this when we were discussing the third petition, thy will be done. There's the will of God and there's the will of Satan. So in the midst of the coronavirus situation, the will of Satan is to destroy your faith, to keep you away from the word of God, to create all kinds of distress and despair in your life so that you want to shoot yourself or jump off of a cliff. Not that any of that is happening in the rhetoric of our world today, but I'm speaking hypothetically. It is God's will in the face of this to draw us closer to the one thing needful, as Jesus taught Martha, Mary has chosen that one thing, to sit at my feet, to hear the only thing that gives true and abiding life. Okay, So here also, God tempts no one. We pray in this petition that God would guard and keep us. That's his will. From the devil, the world, and our sinful nature, that he would guard and keep us so that the devil, the world, and our sinful nature may not deceive us or mislead us into false belief. This is, you never say any of the, of the petitions of the Lord's Prayer following it up with, if it is your will. Because every petition of the Lord's Prayer is first and foremost God's will, because it's God's word. So you don't say, lead us not into temptation if it is your will, but if you want to tempt me and make me deny you and believe all kinds of weird things, that's okay. I mean, what kind of a prayer is that? Okay. So we're praying for the things that we know are God's will to guard and keep us. Now, what the devil, the world, and our sinful nature are, are after is that we despair or that we're driven into some great sense of shame. You know, when you stumble into sin, the devil's will is not simply that you sin, but that you sin in such a way that you deny the things that you absolutely know and believe are true, but you've done it anyway, and you have this overwhelming sense of guilt and shame. Oh my God, what have I done? That's what the devil wants. Because I have sinned so horribly and so, so magnanimously that now God will has cut me off forever. And I'm lost. That's despair. And then vice, if that's what I am, I might as well just be what I am. You see? 
It's like the alcoholic, I'm an alcoholic, so I might as well just drink and drink and drink myself into oblivion. There's the vice, the sinful habits of destruction. So the devil wants you to believe, yeah, you are a wretched, foul sinner, and there is no hope for you, Lafar. so you might as well just indulge every appetite of your flesh, okay? That is never God's will. Rather, God's will is that we believe the truth of the gospel. So at the heart of being led out of temptation is to believe the certainty of the gospel. This is why I always tell people when they're, I'm just no good. Well, you may be no good, but God declares you righteous. And I just, I'm just, just a poor, miserable sinner. I know, so am I. I'm worse than you. But Christ has taken your sin. He has suffered and died upon the cross, and he declares you righteous and forgiven. You're the apple of his eye. Do not be afraid. That final word, that's the ultimate word. The penultimate word, we're sinners. But the ultimate word is we are justified, declared righteous by faith in Christ. So that runs throughout the Lord's Prayer. The doctrine of the justification of the sinner before God by grace alone, through faith alone. Forgive us our trespasses and lead us not into temptation, believing that I am not a righteous Christian but deliver me from the evil one who wants to destroy that faith and reliance upon Christ. Wallace! Did uh, Luther write these, uh, what does this mean, these specifically for preparation for uh, Holy Communion? Oh, that's a fantastic question. Did you hear it? Did Luther write these explanations particularly as preparation for Holy Communion. Um, I had never conceived of it in quite that way with that question, but I think you're actually quite right. Uh, I have um, entered into the discussion, but late, that people talk about the Lord's Prayer is the fourth petition Eucharistic, give us this day our daily bread, because the catechism small catechism focuses on the ordinary things of life as daily bread. And it's actually the wrong question. The entire Lord's Prayer is Eucharistic. Okay? So uh, this is why uh, we don't omit the Lord's Prayer during the divine service at the time of the consecration, even though we may have had a baptism where there's the Lord's Prayer here. So I think you're on to something very significant there, Wally, that, that l- think about those explanations in the context of receiving the Lord's body and blood. His name is being hallowed there. His kingdom is coming to us there. Sounds like essential service, wouldn't you say? His will is being done there. He is giving us a daily bread that transcends everything that has to do with the support and needs of the body. He is forgiving us our sins. So I was talking about that, and we're letting go of the sins of others for Jesus' sake. He is leading us out of temptation and preserving us from the evil one. So, yeah, good. Other questions or comments? All right, let us pray based on the sixth petition. Heavenly Father, lead us out of temptation. Guard and keep us so that the devil, the world, and our sinful nature may not deceive us or mislead us into false belief, despair, and other great shame and vice. 
Although we are attacked by these things, we pray that we may finally overcome them and win the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Now, Galatians 5, 17 ties into both of these. The verses on the board, as well as in your congregation at prayer. I'm going to erase the hymn number here, since we've already sung it. And um, draw your attention to the idea, the flesh lusts, and the spirit lusts or desires. It's an interesting concept. Um, what this verse is talking about is something that is not explicitly named in the verse. And what the verse is talking about is the will, the volition of a person. The flesh, what is that a reference to? The old Adam, our sinful nature. So the old Adam, the sinful nature, the corruption of original sin, lusts or desires to control the will. Okay? The Holy Spirit lusts against the flesh or desires against the flesh to control the will. So Luther talks about a guy being on a horse, uh, drunk, going back and forth from side to side. The influence of our flesh and the influence of the spirit means that there is a tug of war that involves the will. Okay? And faith affects the will. That's why I said earlier, the devil, the great shame and vice. You know, we, God tempts no one. We pray in this petition that he would guard and keep us so devil world and our sinful nature may not deceive us or mislead us. The devil is always taking an element of truth and twisting it to conclusions where God does not want it to go. I assure you, God knows your sin and corruption much more than you know it. He knows it fully. And still he sent his son Still he baptized you, still he absolved you, still he gives you his body and blood. So faith is to believe what is true. And that's the Spirit's work. So that our will is anchored in what God desires. But the flesh is lusting against the Spirit. And the Spirit's desire that our will be anchored in Christ. Okay? So the will is the one thing that is not explicitly stated in this passage, but is really part of the subject matter of this material. Let's say it together. The flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. Now, this may seem like a paradox, and I suppose it is. If Christ has forgiven our sins and we speak of them being washed away, 
Why do I still have this corruption? And from God's perspective, he desires to use even the ongoing uh, corruption of the flesh for at least two fundamental purposes. That through the things that we suffer with our own weakness, we first and foremost come to know in a little bit of a way what it is that Christ suffered for us when he carried our sins. Secondly, in such struggles and suffering where our own impotence spiritually is exposed, we learn to rely upon the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ alone and not ourselves. Okay, so, yes, Cherie? Um, St. Paul and his thorn in the flesh. Um, until I started hearing you say that you believed it was his ongoing struggle with his own sin, um, I don't think I ever heard anyone else explain it that way. You know, they always Well, yeah, the, uh, she's talking about Second Corinthians... Uh, chapter 12, Paul talks about uh, beseeching the Lord to remove this thorn in the flesh. And there have been all kinds of, well, this, he had kidney stones, or he had intestinal problems, or he had a, a problem with his eyes, or whatever. And uh, he likely had all of those things and more, and, but none of those things would bother him or have been a problem without the fundamental problem of sin. It's true of you, too. We all have different personalities. And what affects Laura because of her personality might not be the same thing, may not affect her sister Betsy the same way because there's a different personality at work. But the overarching common denominator is the problem of the corruption of sin. Okay? So... I have often said, in connection with Paul's thorn in the flesh, dear Lord, it would be a lot easier if I, to be an apostle if I weren't a sinner. So the thorn in the flesh, remember Paul's use of the word sarx in Greek, which is flesh, is always a reference to the corruption of sin. So how it agitates, and like a, a, a burr in the saddle, um, or a, a thorn from the thistle or the, um, the, the vine that has prickly thorns on it keeps agitating. That's what sin does. It manifests itself maybe differently for each one of us depending upon, again, like I said, our personality or what have you. But the thorn in the flesh is the sin. And, and Paul's speaking of it in Romans 7, the good that I would, I don't do, and that which I would not is the very thing that I do, O wretched man that I am. Notice he's talking about his will there. He wills as a Christian to do good and to love, and he finds he's incapable of doing it. And what does the Lord say in 2 Corinthians in connection with the thorn in the flesh? My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. That's why if you're suffering from low self-esteem, the last thing you need me or anyone to tell you is, you're really a good person. Come on, Becca, you've got a lot of talent. Look at you've raised all of these kids. You're still raising these kids, but you've got a lot of talent. 
but she sees her failings and her shortcomings. Rather, if she's suffering from low self-esteem, you need to hear, your sins are forgiven. Christ is your righteousness. You are a new creation. There's nothing lacking in you. Okay? And in the end, that's what this fifth and sixth petition is all about. Okay? And there should be great comfort in Galatians 5.17, not as if we can, you know, rescue ourselves from this, but that we learn dependence upon the grace of God in this context. All right, let's speak it one more time. The flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. And then the prayer is from Psalm 102. We will not go over it, but I encourage you uh, to look at the catechesis notes on the second half of Psalm 102, and then this, this prayer that goes with it. Let's turn to Luke chapter 1, and we shall look during this Adventide at the birth of the forerunner, Luke 1, 57 through 80. And there's a few things I want to highlight for your comfort and encouragement on the basis of this text. One of those things is how God was faithful to his promise of mercy in the gospel to Zechariah and Elizabeth, even though Zechariah doubted those promises. It is one of the greatest testimonies of the gospel of salvation by grace and not by works. Because as you recall, when the angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah announcing that the Messiah was coming and that Elizabeth and Zechariah would be the parents of the forerunner, he doubted. But faith is not a work of ours that merits God's favor. To the extent that there is faith in Christ, it is a miracle of the gospel. So Gabriel doesn't say, thus says the Lord, because you doubted my word, I shall cast you out of my sight and I shall find another more faithful couple like Larry and Sharon Martin <laughs> to be the parents of the forerunner. No, he called Zechariah and Elizabeth and he was going to keep his word in spite of Zechariah's doubt. That is comfort, especially for you and for me in our doubts. Cindy. He, he knows all things. So he, he called him knowing he was not going to believe. That's comforting. Well, this is where the catechism is so very helpful. Because uh, Carrie can't say, if I had been Zechariah, I would have believed. And Cindy would have doubted. No. <laughs> okay. Uh, no. What does the catechism teach? I believe that I cannot, by my own reason or strength, Believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him. Okay? So choosing him, knowing he, like all of us, would have had his doubts, was the wonderful way in which God accentuated his grace in the gospel. 
See? Okay. Now, we'll pick it up then. Uh, Elizabeth gets pregnant. And when she's six months pregnant, Mary visits her. And Mary greets her with the wonderful Holy Spirit-inspired words of the Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. He was mighty, has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And hearing that prophecy, Elizabeth overflows. Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. The infant John leaps for joy at six months' gestation in his mother's womb. Okay? Fantastic. And then she stays with Elizabeth another, six, another three months. Why another three months? Because in nine months, three months later, the baby John would be born, and on the eighth day would be circumcised and given the name John, which means the Lord is gracious. So we pick up the account then in verse 57. Now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. When her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. If you remember, in the beginning of Luke's account, Zechariah and Elizabeth were described as devout and righteous, which means in the Bible that they were a husband and wife of faith in God's promise. Even though they had no children, which was considered a reproach, they were not to be considered under God's curse, but rather righteous. That's the significance of the reference to having had no children, yet being righteous. Now, so it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. Since his father wasn't able to speak, they're going to give him that family name. And his mother answered and said, No, he shall be called John, which, as I've said before, means the Lord is gracious, which he certainly was to Zechariah and Elizabeth. But they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by this name. So they made signs to his father. This is the uh, verse that leads me to conclude that not only had Zechariah been struck mute, but he was deaf. Because there's no need to make signs to someone who can hear. But there's a close connection between hearing, the hearing of faith, and confession, the confession of the mouth. So, he was struck mute because he did not believe, and because he did not believe, he could not confess with the mouth. His mouth is going to be open to confess the faith because that faith was worked through hearing in the ear. That faith was worked in the heart. That's the progression. So, uh, St. Paul, we've looked at that over the last fall or winter, Romans 10. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we preach. That if you confess with the mouth 
Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So this linkage between the hearing in the ear, the faith of the heart, and the confession of the mouth. How do we know Elizabeth believed when Mary came to her? Because she said, blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Blessed is she, Mary, for there will be a fulfillment of the words spoken to her. We know what her faith is by the confession of her mouth. How do we know that Mary believed? Well, when Gabriel came to her, she said, what hymn do we sing? Let it be, let it be. She did say, let it be to me according to your word. And then when she went to Elizabeth, she confessed the faith of her heart, born of the word and spirit of God, delivered by Gabriel in the words of the Magnificat, my soul magnifies the Lord. So you need to see the miracle of the opening of Zechariah's mouth to confess as rooted directly to the miracle of faith, which God's word and spirit alone can work. This is why this is essential service, catechesis, and preaching to open the ear and the heart to faith so that the mouth confesses. Okay? By the way, I mean, we're all going to die someday. However, Christians who receive the word and sacrament are more able, generally speaking, to recover from illnesses than when they do not hear the word and they do not believe, and because of it, they're in a sense of despair. You follow what I'm saying? So the more we hear and receive and believe, the more we learn to rejoice in the Lord always, and those kinds of gifts are what enable us to weather the storms of life. Oh, because of the problem of sin and what this verse says, we may not be able always fully to do so understandably. But by and large, you look at the optimism and the joy in our congregation who has continued to meet throughout this time of pandemic versus those congregations who, for whom the one thing overarching above all else is that no one, no one should ever get sick. We're going to shut down because that's the most important thing. And what what's, exists there? Despair, fear, anxiety. To which I say, be gone, Satan. All right, back to the text here. Remember, we talk about his, his muteness linked to deafness. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, saying, his name is John. And they all marveled. Immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he spoke, praising God. Now, Luke does this in chapter 1 in the narrative. He doesn't interrupt the flow of the narrative by giving the confessions of faith, either of Mary in the case of the visitation or Zechariah in the case of the nativity of John. By that I mean 
in the visitation, Mary's greeting of Elizabeth was the Magnificat. So also here, when it says uh, he opened his, his tongue was loosed and he spoke praising God, it's a great expression, the tongue was loosed. It's one of the uh, verbs we learn in Greek first, uh, more uh, when you're learning uh, conjugations. He, it was untied, okay? He had been tongue-tied by unbelief and now his lips were open because faith was opened. Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Psalm 51. John? Uh, Elizabeth knew that Mary was going to be the mother of her Savior. Elizabeth knew How? that... Yeah. How? How? Yeah. I submit to you by Mary's greeting of Elizabeth. Well, that's what, that's what I'm trying to get you to see. Luke does not interrupt the narrative by putting the Magnificat where it belongs, chronologically. In other words, if you wanted to do it the way it belonged, it would have been like this. Um, it happened when Mary, uh, excuse me, she entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth, saying, My soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. He who is mighty has done great things for me. That whole Magnificat. And then you pick up the narrative again. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb. Do you follow? So what I am arguing for, and I'm not alone in this. There's other commentators, the commentators that do that is that Luke puts the actual greeting, the Magnificat, at the end of the narrative rather than interrupt the, 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 the flow of the narrative. You know, she greeted Elizabeth and out of this, boom, explodes this confession of faith. Does that make sense? So also then here with Zechariah, he, he does, it's not like in verse uh, 64, immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed and he spoke praising God. Praise the Lord! Praise the Lord! Praise God! Praise God! And then that's what he did. And then a little bit later on, he was more staid. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel. He has visited and redeemed his people. Now that is the song of praise that he was given to speak. Okay. In both incidents, he doesn't interrupt the narrative. Uh, then fear came on all who dwelt around them, and all those sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them, all these sayings, kept them in their hearts, saying, Wow, what kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. Now, that all kinds of people were discussing these things in all of the villages and hill country of Judea, those are all of the villages and the hill country, the population surrounding what great city? Jerusalem. And what building is in that city where the Jews go all of the time to worship? The temple. There's the daily sacrifice confessing sin praying for salvation and the Lord's Messiah to come. Who dwelt in the temple complex that became famous 
in terms of a song that we sing in our liturgy. Simeon. How, and who was also there with Simeon? Anna, Luke chapter 2. And the more you know the Bible, in this case the Old Testament scriptures, the more you have focus on understanding the meaning of events. In other words, some Roman bloke who doesn't know the scriptures because he doesn't go to the synagogue and so forth, the reports of this birth and this wacko priest who came out uh, unable to speak and you know, and, then he, and then he had a kid and then after he had the kid nine months later he was able to speak. Doesn't mean much to him. But those who were there, Simeon and Anna, would have been in the temple when Zechariah was serving. They observe what happens to him. How he is struck mute. And then John is firstborn. According to the law of Moses, the firstborn has to be brought for a presentation to the Lord at the age of 40 days. Which is what we call the presentation of our Lord when he is brought. John would have been brought also. It's not recorded, but Zechariah and Elizabeth were Jews and he was a priest. Do you think he's not going to continue to follow the liturgy of the Old Testament church? No, he, that child was circumcised. He gave him the name John that was revealed to him. Forty days after his birth, they would have presented him. Who's there? Simeon and Anna. When you come to church, this is one of the things. Obviously, the only thing you do, because you're social distancing, is you walk in, you keep your mouth shut, you sit in the pew, and then you leave as quickly as you can so that you don't have to defile yourself with the slightest bit of contact or interaction or conversation with any of your neighbors. Well, that's absurd. Right? right. You talk to one another. They would have done that there also. You got Simeon and Anna, deep, deep, profound understanding of the sacred scriptures of the Old Testament. If everybody's talking about these things, they know what it means. Zechariah and Elizabeth are the parents of the forerunner whom the prophets repeatedly got. Malachi, you've got Isaiah, um, Malachi, Isaiah, there's other prophets that talk about John the Baptist, his, his, his forerunner ministry. They knew what it meant. They knew who this child was. And if this child is born and he's the forerunner, they know Messiah is coming. And when Magi come from the east saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? It's not only the scribes that knew that it was Bethlehem, but Simeon and Anna would have known not only is he born, but he is soon to be presented in the temple. According to the Lord's word, the male child who opens the womb shall be presented to the Lord and dedicated to his service. This is why when I tell you, as I did in the sermon this morning, that the only ground of certainty for faith, that which creates faith, that which gives strength to faith, and that which gives certainty to faith, is the Holy Scriptures. This is what I'm talking about. When, when I am 
through exhausting everything there is to teach about the Bible and the scriptures. Then I'll go on to bring other stories into preaching and teaching. That's a joke. <laughs> the more we learn the scriptures, the more faith is deepened and anchored into the word of God. That's why I said, John the Baptist, you know, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Jesus comforted him and encouraged him by taking him back to those Old Testament scriptures saying, go and tell John the things that you hear and see. Should have had the choir sing this morning. Go and tell John what you see and hear. Uh, Cherie, you... When Luke says sayings, plural, he's talking about all the sayings. Right? Yes, yes. He's talking about every... Think about all... Because, and no, it's no wonder it's in me and Anne knew probably that Mary was the mother. Absolutely. And when they saw the... Absolutely. All of these things. You think about, it hasn't happened yet, but you think about the shepherds. You know, the shepherds after the angel of the Lord and the glory of the Lord shone around them and uh, they were sore afraid and the angel said, do not be afraid. The shepherds went home and their wives asked them, you know, so how was uh, shepherding? <laughs> uh, you know, same as always. Are you kidding me? They made widely known the things that were told them concerning this child. See, when the liberals talk about oral tradition, they do so, especially this was in the 50s and the 60s, the Seminex garbage and all that. When they talk about oral tradition, they talk about oral tradition as a way to undermine the biblical inspiration of the scriptures. But the as if, well, since people were talking, then it's all fabricated and made up. Are you kidding me? There is oral tradition. And the shepherds and the wise men and Mary and Elizabeth and all of those people who heard of these things, they were good gossips all around Judea. And it was on the basis of the good gossip of all of the things that they had heard that faith was created an anticipation for Messiah. He's, he's at the door. The awesome at the threshold of the great and awesome day of the Lord, which would be his death and resurrection. Okay, so he's about to be revealed. Pastor Gelba. Just, just thinking, an old man and an old woman have a baby, don't you think people are going to talk about it? Nah, it's no big deal. <laughs> of course. You see the point? You see, just, will you stop spending all this time on Facebook? Well, yeah, all right. So, then fear came on all who dwelt around them, and all those sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea, and all those who heard them kept them in their hearts, saying, what kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him, which is another way of saying the word of the Lord was with him. Now his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, and prophesied, saying, and this is his song of praise, the Benedictus. First, what I want you to notice in these opening lines is, is Jesus the Redeemer? Yes. yes. How did he redeem us? 
purchase us back from sin, death, and the power of the devil? You can use the catechism for this. With his holy, precious blood and with his innocent suffering and death. Zechariah, in his song, this man of doubts, now, because of the word fulfilled and the miracle of faith, now he speaks as if Jesus, who is the Redeemer, who is at this moment just three months gestation in his mother's womb, as if he had been born, lived, suffered, died upon the cross, and risen again. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He's still in Mary's womb, but not for faith, because faith rests in the certainty of God's word. Take it to the bank. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And notice in his psalm, he links the conception, birth, redemption of Jesus as the fulfillment of all of God's promises concerning him. He's from the house of David. Amen. That's what the scriptures say. He's from the tribe of Judah. Amen. That's what the scriptures say. He is the seed of Abraham. That's what the scriptures say, as was spoken by the prophets. Since the world began, he's going to say. In other words, Luke, uh, Luke records that Zechariah understood what Luke is going to record Jesus teaching the Emmaus disciples in Luke 24. Was it not necessary that all things be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me? And beginning at those scriptures, he opened up to them their understanding. So Zechariah has that. As he spoke, verse 70, by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began. So Zechariah declares a great truth that Luther championed and other theologians that the entirety of the Bible and the prophetic and apostolic witness is about Christ. And this is what the prophets spoke. Verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To perform the mercy, that's what Jesus would do, perform the mercy promised to our fathers. So promised, again going back to words, and to remember his holy covenant, namely the covenant made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the seed of Abraham who would bring the blessing of salvation to all the nations. The oath he calls the covenant an oath, a promise which he, the Lord, swore to our father Abraham. Another man who from the get-go absolutely believed the promise of the Lord without the slightest bit of doubt ever, right? right. Wrong. He, you know, we're not having this kid. Let's, uh, let's do something about it. And Sarah sends Hagar, her Egyptian servant maid, to have intercourse with him. And then she gets pregnant, and Ishmael is born, but he ain't the son of the promise. He's the son of a slave woman. So the oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him or worship him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Again, the second article of the Creed and the Catechism, serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness, which is a reference to Christ. And then Zechariah, likely holding the newly circumcised John in his hand, 
consoling him from this wound suffered uh, when the foreskin was cut, says to him, you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest. So he's talking to John. John will be the prophet of the highest. So you see, Zechariah is confessing what the prophets declared, that there would be a prophet who would be the forerunner to prepare his way. You will go before his face of the Lord to prepare his ways. Now, obviously, John, not having reached the age of accountability, being incapable of having faith, uh, this word to him was wholly and utterly and completely unnecessary. Wrong. This word is as efficacious for the infant John at eight days of age as the word that was spoken here at the font to, see, who in this room was baptized here at this font? You were, John? No, your children. You were? Not by me, but by, who was the pastor? Pastor Mikow. How many years ago, Joe? 38. Look at 38 years ago, that word, I, Joseph, Thomas, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The word that Zechariah spoke to infant John was as valid as the word spoken to Joseph Thomas in the water of baptism by Pastor Mikkel some 85 years ago. No, how, <laughs> how, just how many? Just because I'm sitting in Pastor Sokol's seat doesn't mean. I know, it's, it's really. You're throwing me. You look so much like him. <laughs> okay? But I want you to see this. The word, don't underestimate the power of God's word. What did John do in the womb of his mother? Holy Writ says he leapt in his mother's womb for joy. You don't have joy unless you have faith. And you don't have faith apart from a miracle of the Holy Spirit and the word of God. Okay. You'll go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. Do you know what the prophet says? No longer shall they say, know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will... You know what comes next? I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So this is a characteristic of praise songs that are the proper kind. The proper praise songs are echoing that which the word of God has already proclaimed. So they all shall know me from the least of the greatest. What prophet? Does anybody know? Jeremiah. They all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So how do we know the Lord? We know him by him forgiving our sins. So John introduces Jesus to the multitudes by forgiving them their sins in the waters of the Jordan when they came out to him, having heard his preaching, confessing their sins, and they were baptized. To give knowledge of his salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God, 
with which the day spring, which is the dawning of a new day, who is the day spring? Christ has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. Notice how that echoes Isaiah. We'll hear it on Christmas Eve. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light to guide our feet into the way of peace. See, it's, it's spot on reflecting Isaiah 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Well, then their feet are led into the way of peace, the peace of sins forgiven. All right. So the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of the manifestation to Israel. 30 seconds. Any, any uh, last question or comment? Beth. There you go. See, okay, I let her do the Facebook, then she just, <laughs> she, she can cue me in on what I need to know. All right. Let us pray. Most merciful Father, comfort us with your Holy Spirit, that we may patiently endure our afflictions and acknowledge them as a manifestation of your fatherly will. Preserve us from faint-heartedness and despondency and help us to seek you, the great physician of our souls. When we pass through the valley of the shadow of death, do not allow us in our last hour for any pain or fear of death to fall away from you, but grant us a peaceful departure and a joyful entrance into your eternal kingdom. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. All right. If you're not...